Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater... With the normal bitcheries and qualms... By watching the video recordings... From questionable origins... Of various productions. Welcome to the finale of Gypsy Mania. This concludes the Unauthorized Critic Circle's first ever event series, talking about one of the greatest American musicals ever made. Well... I can't believe we're here. And Gypsy is certainly one of the most discussed musicals of all time. And we've discussed it the most. And this episode, we're discussing just about everything left. Roses we haven't covered, roses we haven't gotten, a retrospective. It's just a potpourri of roses. We're coming back at the end here to round up everything that we missed along our expeditions. So, without further ado, please enjoy the finale of Gypsy Mania. I'm sad to see it go. And nothing's gonna stop us till we're through! Hey Josh, guess what today is? Uh, it's it's Thursday, I hope, assuming this upload schedule goes according to plan. (laughs) It's the closing night of our Gypsy Mania, which we totally had that name the entire time. That's why we used it so much in the actual episodes. (laughs) And that wasn't something that we found like an hour before we posted the first episode. (laughs) This has been a series where we have been flying off the seat of our pants. I should let you know, break the fourth wall here. It is Monday, May 31st of 2021. This is going up on June 3rd. We are really Fast getting the under the wire. Time. That's what we do. We turn them out. We turn them up real and, and, fast. And, and if you're kid. wondering, like, you know, well, uh, how big of a deal is that? Does that really mean anything? We recorded Lansbury and Merman in, what, March? Early, early first week of March. It's, this, has been a, this has been a journey for us. This has been a journey for us. So this is... It. This, this is, is the it. end of our eight-show week. This is it. At the end of this episode, our gypsy mania is over. Yeah, we are approaching the end of this journey, and I am so excited to have just a couple months of not thinking about gypsy anymore. I am also excited to not talk about gypsy for a while. I'm really excited not to hear you gotta get a gimmick for a while. I I don't know. I don't think that's the I, one. I don't hate that song. I don't hate that song, but God, I don't need to hear it again. That's a song that I'd be excited to listen to again. That's one that I'd be happy to. I'll I'll take a few months off of Small World and Together, probably. I'll be able to get a good amount of time away from those. You know, I have to say, this unintentionally, completely unintentionally, has been a fantastic way to get off book for Gypsy. I am about, (laughs) I don't know, 87% accurate without even trying to memorize the show. What is your favorite line in Gypsy? What did I do it for? I thought you did it for me, Mama. I thought you did it for me, Mama. I thought you did it for me, Mama. 
Dad. I thought you took a no-talent ox into a star because you like doing things the hard See, way, Mama. And I can't even. And really you tell haven't any is, talent. I can't tell if this is proof that you have it memorized or if this is just something you knew before going into the series. Either either is plausible. A little bit for of me. both. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> Not what I call talent. Talent oh, we're gonna for keep the going? deaf, okay. dumb, and blind baby. Not an ounce of it, Miss Gypsy Rosalie. So, what do you say we hurry up and end this series, huh? Hurry up? I think we should enjoy the view. No, 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 no. Let's hurry up. I did the math, folks. We've spent I 20 didn't do the math. hours talking about math. Gypsy. What? That's not the length of all of the episodes that we've published. That's the length of all the episodes we've recorded, including all of the stuff that we cut. The, the Patty Lapone episode and the movie episodes were both over three and a half hours. Patty was 345. The movies were four hours. What did we do for this episode? Let the kids know. Oh my God. We've covered 11 gypsies in our series. 11 different performances, I should say. That's eight different productions, 10 different roses, 11 different performances. And we thought, that's not enough. <laughs> that is not enough. How could you think that would be enough? And so we are dedicating this last episode to talking about all of the roses that we missed. All of the big roses that we have not yet turned our attention to. All of the big roses that have a bootleg that we could find and we found. Yeah, we should probably talk about this. This is probably important. Mm -hmm. And not to say the ones we missed and the ones that have bootlegs aren't important, but it was just a judgment call of, I think I can get through this many. Let's start with a rose that I heard that you have not heard. Okay. We are going to start our journey talking about Susan Johnson. So she was a major Broadway star uh -huh. of the 1950s. The old show tune queens know exactly who Susan Johnson is. She's a Tony nominee. Yeah. Really round, throaty, lovely, old-fashioned belt. Mm -hmm. Now, Susan Johnson played Gypsy at the music carnival. The music carnival was one of the famous equity tents of the 1950s and 60s. There was a whole movement in the 50s to have these theaters in the round. They were tents, and summer stock happened at these tents. Susan Johnson did Gypsy, and unbeknownst to anybody, the guy that ran the music carnival, John Price, had a microphone hanging up at the top of the tent over the stage that then wired back to his office where he had a reel-to-reel -reel tape deck and he recorded, like, every performance. Oh, wow. And he got to his late 90s, and he called up the Cleveland Public Library and said, I have these archives. This was part of Cleveland history. Do you maybe want them? Oh, my God. So what happened? They took all these reel-to-reel -reel tapes, and they got an audio technician, and they fixed all the tapes, and they put them all on CD. So... You can go listen to all of these recordings, all of these tapes, but you have to be in person. It is in the special collections section of the Cleveland Public Library. They will hold your driver's license 
while you listen to it. And these names in these shows aren't names that you're necessarily familiar of, but you see Mimi Kelly's in South Pacific. You do research, and Mimi Kelly understudied Mary Martin in the original production of South Pacific. Also, Mimi Kelly is showing up here in Finian's Rainbow, and she understudied Ella Logan and was on the first national tour of Finian's Rainbow. These people aren't necessarily the big stars, but they were all of the understudies from the original production, so they're still playing it in the original styles. And then they go out to these summer stocks, and that's their career for a couple years. They just go place to place to place, doing their role. And all of these are recorded. Great audio recordings, great quality audio recordings, because of these tapes that were then digitized and put on CD. Thank God and, for archivism. Yeah. And uh, something else you might find in that archive, West Side Story with a completely unknown baby John named Michael Bennett. <laughs> no way. Uh-huh. Oh, killer. And they have an audio recording of Michael Bennett as baby John in those tapes. That's fantastic. I went to the Cleveland Public Library. I listened to Susan Johnson in Gypsy. So I sit down to listen to this. It is in pristine could be released as, like, an actual we recorded this in a studio quality. Wow, that's good. The other thing, when I showed up and said, I'm interested in the Music Carnival archives, the person at the Special Collections made a phone call and said, wait a couple minutes. This guy came up. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I cataloged all the material when it came in. So he got me set up. I was listening to it. He comes back like 10 minutes later carrying something. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? Am I about to get kicked out? They have my driver's license. I can't leave without my driver's mm -hmm. license. What he had was the production files. So he had a souvenir Whoa. program from the show. And beyond that, he had some gloves I had to put on to handle because there were pictures from the production that they had just taken backstage and whatnot. And not only were there pictures, they were the negatives of the pictures. Wow. So I sat down and listened to Susan Johnson and Gypsy, and she was fantastic. Yeah, what do you remember she about She was her? fantastic. I have to say, to this day, it is the best, but I at least gotta try. Just such free tone, such huge tone. This is a voice that was born to sing Gypsy. That's fantastic. The other interesting thing, because I had the souvenir program, I was able to see, oh, this is the baby June that was just on tour with Ethel Merman uh -huh. and was directed by Jerry Robbins. And the interesting thing there, she got to the whole um, Grand Singer office scene and she's talking about Mr. Grand Singer could make me a star. No, mama won't. That whole bit. She has a mental breakdown. She starts absolutely screaming, shouting, having a breakdown. I hadn't heard anything like that. Very dark and very advanced for a musical in 1961 at this point. The Herbie, I thought, was not going to be able to sing. Because Small World, it came to the point where Herbie is supposed to sing, and he didn't sing. But then they added extra portions of the song, and he had a whole second portion that oh. he sang completely on his own. And it was like, oh, he actually is a good vocalist, but he's a tenor, and that isn't what's written in the score. Yeah. The big controversy of the production, let's just say controversy, oh. uh, Susan Johnson gives 
one hell of a Rose's turn. Mm -hmm. Just one hell of a Rose's turn. It's everything you possibly want from a Rose. It's a real old showbiz Rose. And then everyone comes out to bow. Wait, wait. They cut the final scene. Wait. Oh. Oh, wait. It ended. For me. What? Uh Uh-huh. Why? It was late. That was the other interesting thing. Because it is in the round, if you have any piece of scenery, you need time to get the scenery off. So all the scene transitions were very long, and I kind of just fast-forwarded through the transitions. It just comes with the territory of doing a show like this in the round. And just what the time frame was. It was a long performance, but they cut the final scene. Which is a little unforgivable. Yeah. But it is interesting because Susan Johnson is taking this role on what? A year after Merman finished on the tour? Yeah. This is one of the very first roses. It's well documented. And she's a fuck of a rose. And this is someone whose career is not documented well enough because she existed pre-bootlegs, really. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you know her, you have to listen to her on a couple cast albums. And that's it, kid. Okay, so with that, let's start with the roses that we both listened to. And I think we're going to go in the order that they happened. First up, we are starting in 1982, and we are popping over to North Shore Music Theater to listen to Dolores Gray play Rose. Now, Dan, why is this a crucial rose? This is a crucial rose because Dolores Gray replaced Angela Lansbury in Gypsy on the West End when Angela Lansbury went over to do Gypsy in America. Meaning that this is one of the three roses to have ever been on the West End. Correct. Now, mind you, she played the role on the West End a decade before this uh, stock tour. Yeah, it was on Broadway in 1974, yeah? Yes, so she was in the West End, I believe in 1974, maybe even 1973. It's been about a decade, and um, one can get tired of a show. And you can feel the decade. (laughs) You can... I... uh, We have slightly conflicting opinions on this, I found, but it... Dolores Gray's performance... You hated her. You hated her. Go ahead, say it. I wouldn't say it was an outright hate, but I just got so bored listening to this production. This audio was around two and a half hours, which is as long as Gypsy is, and I was surprised it was that short because, sincerely, it felt like every single line delivery in this performance was enunciated with about the same speed as a snail crawling through molasses in half speed. It was just sincerely an excruciating listen for me. That combined with the fact that the audio itself was pretty ganky. Well, it's 1982. Yeah, you know. Take take what you can get. It's it's not unlistenable. Yeah, no, no, no. It's not unlistenable. 82 at summer stock I'll get. I'll remind you, 61, we got the clearest goddamn audio known to man. Well, and then the Susan Johnson I just mentioned is even clearer because they had an audio technician working on the What happened between the 60s and the 80s to 
catapult the quality so far downwards. Um, what what did you think about Dolores? So here's what I don't think you're getting. Mm-hmm. And I did ask you, have you seen her in a movie before? No, I or haven't. Or have you seen her perform? This was my introduction She's, to her. She is never the highest energy. Okay. But she exudes star quality. She exudes glamour. She exudes self-confidence. So with that in mind, I do think she was tired. I do not think she was as low energy as she sounded from an audio only. I also have a very distinct idea about who this rose is. Okay, hit me. This rose is a mean, hopeless alcoholic. All right. And if you have been by mean, hopeless alcoholics, energy comes in waves. There's one moment they are almost passed out. The next, they are ready to hit you. And so it is not always going to make sense where the energy comes and where the energy goes, but there is a whole constant ebb and flow of energy, which I think just registered to you as it being boring. Now, she is very slow. We should also mention she's 59 here. That seems like nothing nowadays, but back in the 80s, we think of 60 as being not a big deal. 60 was a huge deal at the time. The fact that she's even going on a stock tour, and I think she was playing a bunch of in-the-round theaters uh, at the age of 60, we should give some leeway. This, I might benefit from going back and listening to it again with, I guess, this sort of knowledge in mind, and probably after, I should probably get back to it after having seen her, you know, visually and seeing how she carries herself. That being said, I don't think it'll be any time too, too, too soon. You know what's interesting? She goes to the final confrontation with Herbie, and there's the whole line, You're jealous. Jealous because my babies always come first. Now, what she gives you is, You're jealous. Yeah. Jealous because my babies... She adds a yeah in there. Like... Oh, I pulled that out of the ether. It turns out that's right. And now I'm going to twist the knife into you. I found that to be a very interesting color. This is a very conniving rose. From that very first scene, you can see exactly how conniving she is, how vindictive she can be, how angry she can be. And that really plays out to various shades throughout the entire evening. And that a final note, Dolores Gray offers Louise up to strip, and for the first time, she sounds excited. She sounds happy. Things really start moving for her. I found that very freaky. Hmm. I'm glad you got so much out of it. (laughs) I don't mean to to make that sound dismissive or to make that sound like I didn't get any of that from it, and I'm happy to hear that it was effective. Here's the thing. It's not completely effective, but you can hear what would have been in place a decade earlier. And you can hear why she would have been successful in the role. Sure, sure. It has diminished over time, but you get all of the tendrils that you're supposed to get. You can imagine in your head what the full picture would have been if you saw her in London in 1974. What we're going to do is we are going to jump forward a decade and we are going to land in 1992 where we are watching Jaina Robbins perform the role. Jaina Robbins, stand by to Tyne Daly. 
in the second Broadway revival, which is aided even more significantly by the fact that this production is just the second Broadway revival done at a regional theater. Not just standby for Tyne Daly, standby for Linda Lavin, and then went on to be a standby for Betty Buckley out in Paper Mill. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that so? Yes. Yeah. So she was a standby in this role? For an entire decade. Yeah, for pretty yeah. much an entire decade. Also should put out there, Tony Award nominee, Jana Robbins. She produced the Ragtime revival. Yeah. Yeah, she did. Yeah, it's not a... When you get a Tony-nominated actress playing Rose, here we feel the need to distance Tony-nominated and actress. <laughs> There's a distinction to make there. Well, you're making her sound like she's a schlub as a performer. And Not at all, frankly. Yeah. Because, uh-huh. holy crap, was I magnificently stunned with her Rose. This isn't uh, a Rose that appealed for me in terms of characterization as much as someone with the nuance and depth of Linda Lavin or Betty Buckley or Patti Lapone appealed to me. But, God, this is just a rose who'll give you an excellent night at the theater. I think this mm-hmm. is some of the most solid musical comedy performance that we've seen in our entire series. I think this is probably up there with Ethel. And she got a lot of the same laughs as Ethel that... None of the 20 performances we'd seen alongside this have gotten in certain places, you know? I remember a while ago you mentioned something about Ethel getting the laugh at, my husband is an odd fellow. That was the first time I've ever noticed this getting a laugh outside of Ethel. Yeah. Someone who just really gets the comedy of it, someone who's really fantastic with the physical expressions, and someone who just is so adept with the book, someone who's so aware of the book and knows how to play it so well, knows what lines really gotta be punched, which lines have those potentials, both for, you know, that sort of stark gut punches that you can give to the audience, and also just as comedy. I've heard a rumor that after the Tyne Daily revival had closed, Arthur Lawrence sat back and said the best rose was Jan O'Robbins. I'm not stunned to hear that. I am not stunned to hear that either. If anything, I am glad that this particular video exists of her because, again, I want to stress, when I say that this pretty much is the second Broadway revival, I don't just mean, oh, they went with the same kind of direction, maybe they whipped out the same prompt book, maybe they recreated all the sets. These are the Broadway costumes. These are the Broadway sets this mm-hmm. is pretty much the. This is entirely the Broadway staging and choreography. The production had closed, so they just shipped everything off to Massachusetts. And another thing, Jana Robbins is actually not the only alumni of that production that's in this performance, is it? No. We also have Michelle Pigliavento, <laughs> who was the understudy for Louise for the entire Time Daily revival. So this really is just, we're just seeing the understudy night here. And you know what? They are both excellent. They really are. It also helps. I'll point this out as well for the purposes of this, for these nine bonus roses. This is the only video that we got to see. That being said, this is a house cam video. This is like an official video recorded by the company on a camera that they had on a tripod in the back of the house. Every now and then they'll cut to a different angle and it's cool. But yeah, I just loved this performance. I absolutely loved it. 
I didn't search for a thesis, but if I happened upon one, I'm going to give it. And for this rose, it's not about people walking out because there's the whole line at the end of act one. I'm used to people walking out. It's not about people walking out. It is about betrayal and how she has been betrayed and how she reacts to any form of betrayal. I'll agree. And that's something that's really emphasized, especially in something like the train scene, which Mm -hmm. knocked me off my feet. She starts very slowly ripping up the paper, very casual-like, and then suddenly snaps on a hair. It's just freaky. And then, oh my god, she turns to Louise to give her a now I'm gonna make you a star thing. I swear to god, it is the most intimidating thing I've ever seen from a rose. Well, and then later on, I do want to point out, this rose doesn't marry Herbie, not for any other reason than... My past husbands have betrayed me, and if you're going to become a husband, that's exactly how you're going to end up. It's going to end up the same way, so I'm going to stop you off before we even get started. I buy that. I buy that. And the last thing I want to point out about this performance, um, she gets to Rose's turn, and Rose has the whole section where she imitates Louise's strip, uh-huh. and Jaina Robbins is so successful at the imitation <laughs> yeah, that- she's- the entire audience starts applauding in the middle of the number. Yeah. <laughs> so after that, we are going to hop another decade to 2001. <laughs> Whiplash. We had we had 1962. We, got... we had 1982. Then we had 1992. Now where are we? We are going to hit 2002 in a bit. But before that, we're going to start in 2001. And in 2001, oh. we have Judy K playing oh, Rose. Oh, yeah. Judy Kay, which everyone on the podcast knows I've adored so much uh, in roles such as Mrs. Bechtel in Fun Home, as Cosette in Les Miserables. For those that haven't listened, we recorded our second episode. The second episode was Fun Home, and we started talking about... Judy Kuhn. Judy Kuhn, and... Lovely Joshua over there introduced, I... and we have Judy Kay as Allison Bechtel. Was that what it was? I thought the thing was that I thought Judy Kuhn had played Christine in Phantom. No, no, <laughs> you completely mixed the two up. Oh, well, that's not, that, yeah, that is worse. Episode. That is worse. Mm-hmm. Judy Kay, who I, I I would assume most general audiences know uh, as the original Broadway Carlotta in the Phantom of the Opera. Um, Tony winner for that. And what else uh-huh. did she win? She's a two-time Tony winner. What else what did she, did she win, win for? Tony for? That's what I just asked. You don't know these things? This isn't at the top of your fingertips? She won for nice work if you can get it. Oh, I thought. see, I thought it would have been rags. She was not in... Oh, Jesus. She was in rag <laughs> time. She was in rag time. No, that was Judy Kuhn. No. She did the Tony performance of it and everything. It was great. <laughs> One of these days, Rose... Judy Kay, please let's give our attention to Judy Kay. I have to say first, this is a very good production of Gypsy. Just this was in Seattle, uh-huh. Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle, I believe. A, pretty, a, a relatively big name, R- relatively sizable theater. Um, some of these productions, and we will talk. Some of these productions, you felt bad for the divas that they didn't get a better production this is a fantastic production this is a production that deserved judy k and this is a production that judy k deserved you said something about judy approaching this role akin to an opera performer 
No, no, no. Let me explain what I mean. Vocally, she is the most technically sound Rose we have heard this entire time, including the people we've we said will this, talk about today. We've said this about Betty Buckley. We've said this about Patti Lapone. It is being overruled here. Judy Kay is the most technically sound vocal Rose. Um, other people might have been more vocally thrilling, but Judy Kay, that technique is solid, that technique is sound. What I meant to say is if you have heard classical singers, singers that have done opera, if you have heard them actually belt, some of them are successful, some of them are not successful. If they were to be completely successful at the belting sound they are trying to make, they would end up sounding like Judy Kay singing this score. Mm-hmm. That is, as far as classical singing goes, that is exactly what they think chest voice is. And sometimes they will abandon the chest voice sound because they aren't comfortable singing like that. Judy Kay is comfortable singing like that, and she shows you that sound that they are all going for can absolutely 100% work. They're just pussies that wimp out. <laughs> <laughs> She just sounds terrific. Don't you think so? Sincerely, you and I came up with something that I want to put out there and that I think Judy K is the bar. I think Judy K is the bar for a gypsy, you know? I think this is this the bar is... of where you're going to get a great night out at gypsy mm -hmm. this is pretty much your template rose if you want yeah. a template of what the ideal rose will be you will go see judy k's performance and yep. that is the template exactly it is exactly the rose you walk in expecting and you leave incredibly satisfied mm -hmm. you get a fantastic performance fantastic comedy fantastic vocals and you get exactly what you paid for you get the exact performance that the book dictates and it's just a really, really fantastic time. And I really, really enjoyed listening to her. She builds up that monologue into Everything's Coming Up Roses. She, you know, some people dwell on some lines. Some people completely flip out on some lines. And there's a bunch of very valid interpretations. We've seen a bunch of very valid interpretations. I think Judy Kay built that monologue up into the song the best so that the song is then completely believable as an extension of that monologue also this is a just a side note this has nothing to do with anything there were just a couple line readings where i just thought she sounded exactly like madeline khan it's just like every here and there it's well, peppered in if anyone ever finds the audio they'll pick it up and you know of course Madeline Kahn was in on the 20th century. She decided about a couple of months into the run, yeah, I'm not feeling this. I'm going to head out. And her understudy, <laughs> Judy Kay, took ah, over the role. There we go. I'm not, I'm not at all surprised to hear that, sincerely. I do have to say, the scariest moment of this rose is not anything you would expect. What's that? The scariest moment... Louise freaks out before we're together, wherever we go. I'm not June. I'm not a blonde. I can't do this. Maybe you want to stay in showbiz. Judy Kay completely dismisses her and completely dominates her into everything's going to be okay. Again, she speeds up into I am singing. You are now going to join me singing because everything is okay. And we are going to forget that you had this outburst. She so thoroughly dominates this Louise. 
the, 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 the line that did that for me was also in that scene. It was when she said, that's a foolish remark from a foolish girl. And just mm-hmm, completely exactly. infantilizes Louise right in front of her. But doesn't even break after that line. Because usually, yeah, just that's a foolish remark from a foolish girl. There's a little pause, and then they continue. No, no, no. There is no pause. She is heading straight for that song, because as soon as she's singing, she's singing, and it's a group happy number, so you better start singing too, baby. I, if your head's hurting from all the time jumping, don't worry, because now we just have to wait a year until we get to... Let's just see where the next few minutes holds for you, Dan. Lorna Luft. Lorna Luft! Uh, playing Rose. <laughs> Lorna Dan, Luft. this is yes. the first time we're coming to Lorna Luft on the podcast. And well, we're gonna, technically for the audience, this is it's chronologically the first time in terms her. of release. I think we have an episode. We have About an episode four in weeks a few. from now, we're yeah. going to return to Lorna. And we'll have to maybe see if we have to go back into the editing process and cut out that that was the first time we were seeing Lorna. But in any case... Would you like to explain the significance of Lorna Loft? Would I? I'd love to. So, Lorna Loft is part of the very famous Gum Garland Manelli Loft Entertainment Dynasty. What a series of syllables. (laughs) Lorna Loft is the daughter of Judy Garland. She's the sister of Liza. And she's had a terrific career in her own right. She wrote a book, Me and My Shadows, which I brought up on a few former episode as part of this series. Um, I brought up Renee Silwinger playing Judy Garland twice. I don't know why, but it ended up on two different episodes during the <laughs> series. <laughs> Has nothing to do with Gypsy, but God, did it come up. Yes, it did. L- Lorna is the daughter of Judy Garland, and she's just terrific in her own right. And here she is as Rose. And as the audience knows, Judy was supposed to do the movie of Gypsy, but there were some insurance problems. Um, and so I don't want to say that Lorna is the closest we'll get to Judy in the role, but what I found interesting, and it's nothing that Lorna's doing, Lorna isn't trying to imitate Judy Garland at all, but just genetically there are certain similarities in the voice, and you realize certain little peeks into Judy Garland. And I'm going to talk about those just for a second first, and then we will talk about Lorna as a separate entity, as she is due. Something like Small World. Um, Small and funny. She does a little fall on, and you can absolutely hear Judy doing that. You can Uh absolutely hear exactly how Judy would do that. It's not exactly how Lorna does it, because it's not the same voice, but you can hear... That is the instinct, and that is exactly what would have happened. Other points, you see just how the voice can open up and how she can really belt. And you got some of the same comedic bits. Judy always had great comedic timing, and Lorna has some of the same comedic timing. Specifically for Lorna, the line was, and you mentioned it yourself, I'll call you tomorrow when I'm finished! That got the biggest laugh I've heard it get in this entire series. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought she had a fantastic voice. That was that much was very clear. And I thought she had a lot of bravado. I thought she was a very, very powerful Rose. A really, really strong performer. Uh, this was a university production. And yes. a really impressive one at that. Because the pit didn't sound half bad either. There were moments where you could tell. Yeah, well, yeah, but... of course, of course, of course. But overall... It's not the worst orchestra that we have here. 
by a long shot. <laughs> That's for damn sure. Not just a great, enjoyable rose, but a great, enjoyable production. I loved it all around. You'll never get away from me. Just try, and you're gonna see. Best. Best. I mean, the way her voice opens up, the way it just wallops you in the gut. Oh, God. And Mm -hmm. then during Rose's turn, I don't know if this is me internalizing who her mother is, but the whole mama, mama, mama's gotta let go. You felt that was... That was one of the most heartbreaking that section has been. I do remember that, actually. Deeply heartbreaking. You know, this was a very proud Rose... This was a Rose who had a very high opinion of herself. This was a very brash Rose. And it all worked. Okay, now we're going to go a couple years forward to 2004. And we are coming to another pretty big name. Andrew McArdle, best known for playing the original Orphan Annie on Broadway. So, let's talk about Andrew McArdle's Rose. You know, she sounds terrific. I have to say, always, the voice has aged from Annie in that she now sounds like a fully grown adult. Uh Beyond that, the voice has not aged a single day. She has not lost an ounce of the power. It's every bit of the power. It is every bit of tone. It's every bit of vocal athleticism. Yes. And she sings the score terrifically. Just terrifically. A very lovely voice. How about the book? You know, she does get some laughs. Mm-hmm. The audience was laughing at her. She did find a lot of the jokes. I don't know if there was a director on this production, mm-hmm. which is harsh to say, but it didn't seem like there was a unifying force that pulled everybody together. Right. Not just in, like, stage direction. I'd say also musical direction, too. Uh, the band sounded like there was a an electronic keyboard and occasionally there was. a slightly out of pitch trombone. This was a soundboard audio, and maybe something in the mixing was off, but God, did it sound like that piano was taking dominance at times, which I don't know that it ever really shouldn't, Gypsy. Uh, This pit, it sounds like there aren't many players. They aren't playing well. Andrew McArdle did nothing wrong. We want to make that very clear right now. She seemed to have the right instincts. There needed to be a director being a more unifying force and pushing her to say, these instincts are exactly correct. Run with that. There's the money. Gypsy is a hard show to do. And I think she had a very valiant effort. I think she's let down by this production. And I think she theoretically could be a very solid rose. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, definitely. we do not get one here. We don't get one here, but I don't think one could have been possible with her surroundings. Um, we are now going to 2008, I believe. And folks, we are back on Broadway, Broadway. We missed it so. We're, We're leaving soon and taking June to star her in a show. We are back on Broadway. We are back in the fourth Broadway revival, Patti LuPone's production taken from Encores. And we are looking not at Patti LuPone, but at her understudy, understudy to the stars, Lenora Lenora Nemitz, who we covered playing Mazeppa in this production, as well as Mrs. Cratchit. 
Yes, Lenora Nemitz is a very famous understudy to the stars. She understudied both Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera in the original production of Chicago. Now, mm-hmm. Gwen Verdon, of course, had a vocal injury and had to have a vocal surgery, I believe. She swallowed either a feather or a sequin, depending on who tells the story. Uh. And she had to get that removed surgically. And Lenora Nemitz played a couple of performances and then... <laughs> Oh, yes. oh! Here's where she is. Okay, sure, sure, sure. You know, that makes sense. I don't know if you, I don't know if you know Lenore Nemitz, but she understudied me in the rink, and she understudied me in Chicago too. Actually, when Gwen went out in Chicago, because she understudied both Gwen and Cheetah, and they were about to give Lenore Nemitz a multi-week run. I said, "No, fuck Lenore Nemitz. I'm be in the show." Whoa. Whoa, this is the first time we've heard Liza swear. That's, this is a landmark. I, 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 I'm, I'm really happy to hear Liza Minnelli say fuck. I'm really happy with that. Yeah, Lenora Nemitz had to step aside so Liza could do the role. Which I guess was the right call to make. So beyond understudying Chicago, Lenora Nemitz understudied Liza in the rink. She's just a terrific person. A great musical theater name. The musical theater aficionados will know the name Lenora Nemitz. How could we do this episode and not include Lenora Nemitz? So in that case, let's go ahead and talk about her. Do you want to kick it off? She seems very old school showbiz in just the right kind of way. And she has all of the old school charm. She has all of the old school can-do attitude. She has a great musical theater voice. You hear that voice within a mile. It has such a specific timbre. It has such a specific tone that you cannot mix that voice up with anybody else on a recording. Hmm. You're not going to hear that voice and say, I don't know, that might be Pennyworth. No. No, no, no. That's Lenora Nemitz. You know exactly who that voice is. And that's how old musical theater used to work. You would go for the individual voices. That's what you wanted to do. They weren't just turning these people out for degrees by the mill. So she has a great voice. She sings the score very well. It also should be mentioned, this was her only performance that she did of the role. This is her first and last performance as Rose. Yes, correct. And yet, there is still a bootleg. The world is a wonderful place. I am going to allege that one of the ushers saw the understudy board go up and called one of his friends, Get over here with the tape recorder! You know, I admire the fact that this singular performance has been captured and preserved and that we have this performance with us. On the subject of it being a first and last performance, I I got that. I got that this was a first performance. There was characterization that I was able to find... I just personally didn't pick up on a heap of it. Most of the stuff I picked up on her, I picked up pretty early. Um, I liked that this was a Rose who really put on airs when she's in that business. You know, I wrote a note that uh, in that first scene, I felt like she was delivering her lines with a feather boa and a martini glass in her hand. You know, like it's like she had like some kind of breakfast at Tiffany's cigarette holder in her mouth. Like that's how I pictured this kind of like sophistication and this air that she put on and then i also noticed that that very noticeably drops when she's having her little buddy buddy moment with june if you remember our conversation on the, of the fourth broadway revival we talk about how there's like a real friendship between june and rose 
uh, which I assume, you know, Lenora also gathered from the talks with Arthur. And then interestingly, the airs actually come back on when Louise enters the room. And that was something like, oh, I'm really excited to see where that went. But then from there, I just didn't get much individuality. I didn't get much of a thing from it. You know, I did find characterization in this rose. This is a rose that keeps moving. Uh, She keeps barreling on like a Mack truck. And I was wondering... Mack truck is an interesting way to put it. Yeah, she does not stop. She just keeps going on, going on, barreling on, barreling over people if she has to. Yeah, plows through. And I was thinking, you know, why? Why? And then her rose's turn happened, and I understood why. This is a rose whose life has no meaning, and she's trying to find meaning. Sure. And she just has to keep on moving as fast as she can in search for that meaning. And because she is moving so fast, she's possibly passing that meaning by. Which honestly makes the ending more tragic, because the end of the show then is that Rose finds out the last 20 years of her life have been searching for meaning in her life, but the show ends and she still hasn't found it. So she's still going to go on, keep moving, and keep searching. And where I think that really works is that final image where she's reaching up and the rose lights are sprinkling out. Mm -hmm. She's reaching. She's still on the journey. She is still searching. This is another rose I think I'll have to give a second listen to. I thought she did a damn good job. She's certainly a professional. Yeah. It sounded like a professional. Yeah. I'm definitely not going into this. If you hear that Lenora Nemitz is an understudy and you hear that she's going to be on, you don't really walk into that theater as disappointed as uh, one probably would be when they find out they get a replace and you know they get an understudy for Patty Lapone. You hear you get someone like Lenora Nemitz, you go, "Okay, I'm safe." You know, mm-hmm. I just didn't click with it when I listened. Are we done with Lenora? Sure. Okay, can we talk about Leslie Uggams? Yes, we can talk about Leslie Uggams Folks, all day we long. we listened to Leslie Uggams Leslie perform Uggams, Madame Leslie Rose Uggams, in 2014. Oh my god, this is not the best Gypsy that we have listened to in this series by a long shot. But it is the best Gypsy Let's... we have listened to by a long shot. Let us be clear. Yes. It is not the best Gypsy, not because of Leslie Uggams, who is very good in this. Amazing. She is amazing She's in so, this. so... I... I love so much of this. It's, it's not the best Gypsy because of some of the people Because of everything her. else, actually, I'd say. Because of everything like, else about this sucks. Like her friends in the orchestra. I don't think they were her friends. They were more character assassins in the orchestra (laughs) who were actively working against her. Uh, Look, to start off with, when you start the overture and you're starting off with the and you miss about 40% of the notes in that section and that's how you're starting off. Uh, and why truncated all? Why jumped there? Well, also, the whole theme of the show is, I had a dream. Yeah. You're going to cut that from the beginning of the overture? 
And if they sounded even a little bit better, I'd be I'd be more lenient. Oh, this this one. Oh boy. The music director, the poor music director, in over his head, does not know where the underscoring begins and ends. Uh huh. Just. It starts randomly, and if there's 32 bars, they play for 32 bars, and everyone puts their instruments down. I was okay. I'll say this: we're not. I was gonna say we're not exactly getting a star-studded cast. You know who we do get in this though? Michael James Leslie, who is a star. And and what's the what's the scene-stealing role that he's playing in this? Pop. <laughs> they dragged Michael James Leslie to buttfuck nowhere. And had him do one scene and then sit backstage the entire show. I have to say, Michael James Leslie, I saw him in Sweeney Todd. Uh He's not the only person that cast we will be covering today. He was the best Judge Turpin I have ever seen. He's he's really a fantastic performer. And something else that I found out, uh, he's apparently lifelong friends with Leslie Uggams, which made me realize, oh, that's why. Why don't you make him Herbie? That would have been interesting. This is, I believe in their press materials, they stated that Leslie Uggams, they believed it was the first, and again, this is a press release from 2014, but she was the first African-American performer to take on the role in an equity production. Which blows my mind. They believe that happen? 2014 this is garbage is that it took that long. 50 years into the existence of Gypsy, 50, more than 50 years we get our first Black Rose. How does that happen? How did no one give Leslie Uggams this show earlier? Why didn't she get this in the she, 80s? Well, she was pro- a little young in the 80s, but how was she not seen, I don't know, around the early 2000s, at least, or the late 90s? So she's 71 here, and she is the oldest 71. Rose we cover in this series. She is 71. She is taking on the role for the first time. And, I mean, it should not have taken this long. She has a history with Julie Stein. She won a Tony Award for Hallelujah Baby, which is a Julie Stein show. And you know who else was on Hallelujah Baby? Who? Arthur Lawrence. Huh. Arthur Lawrence wrote the book of Hallelujah Baby. It's the composer of Gypsy. It's the book writer of Gypsy. And no one thought to put her in Gypsy until now? And then you can't give her a better production when she finally gets there? can give her a good production. Here's my other. I will get on my soapbox for a second. Go ahead. I've had multiple ideas because of this episode. At the very least, we need subsidized theater that pays for six good musicians, <laughs> at the very least, that travel from summer stock production to summer stock production to regional production to regional production, supporting our divas, making sure they have a halfway decent orchestra. When they do Gypsy. Yeah. At the very least, we need a good <laughs> a trumpeter from New York. A traveling troop of subsidized performers. Yes, that just support our divas. They uh, they turn on their treble clef signal in the air. Through the black of night, 30 tuxedo-clad performers jump onto a rooftop, already tuned. <laughs> <laughs> We need to support our divas better. And we need to give them more opportunities to play Madame Rose in Gypsy. She doesn't even sound like she is three quarters of that age. She sounds terrific. She is energetic. See, she is spry. She is on the ball. Some of the vocals, I would say, sound a bit aged. Again, 
71. I disagree. She doesn't sound nearly as good as a 71-year-old should sound. You hear that voice and you're like, mm, okay, maybe she's like, she's starting to push 50. You can hear that she's starting to push 50 in her voice going, 71! Mind-blowing. Effervescent. Yeah. yeah, she might sound like she's 50, but no, she's 71. She's so charming. Yeah, she's so proud. She's a very proud Rose. She's so charming and then it turns and she gets very angry and she gets yes. very bitter. She is almost the most bitter rose that we have covered. Now, I think that comes from the text and that also comes from you waited, you made me wait for how many years to do this fucking show and then on top of that, you motherfuckers couldn't give me a better production. What the hell is going on? Every single odd in the book is stacked against Leslie Uggams. Every single disadvantage that could go into an event like this is thrown at her. And she's still delivering an 8 out of 10 rose. At least. High, at least. Which is really high. She is just terrific. This is one of the most devastating. Why does everyone walk out? One of the most devastating we've heard. This is a summer stock production. I don't know how much of a rehearsal period she would have had. She's also 71 and taking on a role this size at that age. That is something that should be celebrated, and she does a goddamn good job. And shame on the world for not putting her in the role sooner. You're this completely is something right. she was born to play. This was a role she was born to play. This is a role she should have played many times over in many different productions. And the fact that she did not is something that we will have to live for till the end of the universe. You're completely right. I never get hyperbolic. I and... never get hyperbolic. <laughs> we will live with this till the end of the universe. <laughs> she really is. And under the right direction and the right production she would be one of the main She roses. would be a Tony winner. Yes, she would. She would be another Tony. She mm -hmm. would have another Tony. So, we are now jumping next to 2017, where we are talking about Julia Murney as Rose. This is the first Elphaba... Uh-huh, yeah. ...to play Rose, to my knowledge. Isn't that fun? Isn't that just lovely? I saw her uh, the second time I saw Wicked. And how was she there? She was very good. I did not have any complaints. This was my first time hearing a performance of hers. Clearly very talented. Yeah, she's fantastic. Want to know something funny? We've got two Elphabas in this. Louise is played here by Carolyn Bowman. Played Elphaba on Broadway. People might also know her uh, from the national tour of Evita as Eva Peron. And she is, I say currently, before the pandemic, she was playing Elsa on the national tour of Frozen. What is our Evita pipeline to Rose? Pretty significant. Now that I think about it. We're going to be talking about pipelines. What's the Evita pipeline? We have Patty Lapone. We have Caroline Bowman, but she doesn't play Rose. She plays Louise. Uh -huh. Who else? I'd be interested We have see. Rhea Jones. Oh, who played... right. We don't talk about her today, but she she was the no, youngest ever No, we don't talk about her, Ava. but she... She was the youngest ever Ava, and she did play the role in 2018? Uh, she played in, in 2020. Okay, 2020 in Manchester. Do we have any other Avas? I don't know. Julia Murney! Julia Murney played Ava Peron at Sacramento oh, right. Music Circus. Right, right, right. I forgot about that. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, both Louise and Rose have played Elphaba and Ava Peron. Which is hilarious. 
Uh, you felt very strongly about this production. Yes, I did. This is one of the most I've ever enjoyed a production of Gypsy in our entire series. We should have disclosed this at the beginning, but we did not listen to the entire uh, things for these series. We had nine to get through. We can't be expected to listen to an entire two and a half hour thing for each individual thing. I had my own highlights and Dan had his own highlights that we usually skimmed through and tried to get. I listened to about 60, 70 minutes of the show. Dan listened closer to two hours. With this recording, I found myself listening to almost the entire thing. I listened to about two hours of this thing. And here's my thing about it. To me, this felt like an extremely modern sensibility version of Gypsy. There were a lot of interpretations here that I found so incredibly astute and so incredibly relatable. Julia Murney's rose is unlike all of the roses that I have ever seen in that the rose that we see in Gypsy always is this kind of mythical being. We know of this kind of mother. We've never really seen it, but we know this kind of, like, you know, overbearing, do-anything-for-her-kids, stage mom kind of person, right? Julia Murney's Rose is the first mom I've met. I know this mom. I have been around this mom, and I think anyone of my age bracket knows this mom. This is the head of the PTA mom. This is the wear pantsuit everywhere mom. This is the city councilwoman kind of mom. This is the kind of mom who carries around a clipboard with her. She is a helicopter mom who is so constantly spinning things in this positive light, who is so constantly putting on this sense of self-importance that extends to her kids, that sense of me and my kids are better than you, that kind of... Well, my Jeffrey passed the SATs with a 95%, and I heard that your Henry did a little less below, but I'm sure my kid can give you tutoring lessons. It's that kind of mother. It is the stereotype of, like, the evil mom to the prissy rich kid that you see in Disney Channel movies. This Rose is someone I knew in my bones. A and the thing is, whether or not that is something that objectively works in Gypsy is a different story. To me, this felt like how Gypsy would be played if it was set in the modern era. If Gypsy was modernized, if Gypsy was given that kind of spin, this is how it would be played. These are the dynamics of the characters that would make sense to these templates right now. Should that ever happen to Gypsy? Probably not. It's not just a story that's set in the 1920s, 1930s. It's based on a true story it's based on a real family and so you and it's based on the life of vaudeville it's based on it's very specific it's based to the on an autobiography it's based on right a version of the truth yeah uh, nothing in gypsy is factual yeah okay yeah true. pretty Fair much enough. nothing is factual e even still it is so specifically relevant to the time period you can't have a story about the death of vaudeville in 2017. And so, so do you think this worked? I don't even know that that's what it was going for. But that's the interpretation I got from it. And in concept, no, that doesn't work. In execution, this is one of the most powerful versions of the story that I've ever listened to. And one of the most effective to me. 
Uh, I, I just didn't even think of it in that in those terms. Uh, I did find it very interesting. Uh, mainly what I found interesting is that Julia Murney... Look, we've seen the show, what, 11, 15, 20 times at 20, this point? 20 times. There are certain line readings you can expect. Mm-hmm. And the actress doesn't give just, this is the line reading, this is how I say it. The Each person, just merely from the fact that it's coming out of their own mouth, it will ring differently. Julia Murney takes zero of those line readings. She takes zero steps. She takes none of the paths you are expecting her to take. She genuinely finds this role for herself. Something like, Mother, why do I have three fathers? Normally you expect, because you're lucky! Or something along those lines. Julia Murney finds a completely different joke on the same line. Mother, why do I have three fathers? Because you're lucky. Yeah. And and it's a huge laugh. It's not the laugh you're expecting. It's not the laugh that has ever existed before, but it is in the script. She does the line in the script. She reacts to the script how she would react. And maybe that's where you're getting a modern sensibility because Julia Murney is a woman living in the modern age. Exactly. But what I saw was an actress making sense of a role not based on preconceived notions, but based on her own intuition. And that in and of itself is just magnificent. And it's why that she's such an effective Rose, because it's not just that she's like throwing you off your rhythm for the sake of throwing you off your rhythm. She's making it personal and she's really mm-hmm. finding she what is works for her. It. I think that what works best for her is probably what she knows. And what she knows is probably, you know, that kind of minivan mom I don't think she necessarily has an image of a minivan, Mom. I think she's genuinely just trying to find the script. And how that came out might be minivan, Mom, to you and I nowadays. I don't necessarily think that's what she's going for. That might have been the result, but I don't know if that was the intention. I don't I, think n- that was the intention. I here. don't know that this was the intention either. Again, it like, and you look at the production photos for this thing, and it threw me so far off. Because they were all in 20s and 30s design. And I was like, this is not what I'm seeing. But again, that's just what came to my mind. And that's just what I heard from hearing hearing the dialogues recited in the way it was. I don't think it was the intention to go, oh, okay, we're going to modernize this. Clearly, objectively, it was not. But that was exactly the impression I got. That is exactly what it felt like to me. God damn it, I, like, there's no objectively better way to put it. This was the first Karen Rose. There's some things I want to point out about the production. Sure. The first thing I want to point out, the synth, the synthesizer yes. here. Yes, Is extremely, extremely, prevalent. extremely obvious. Very, very and prevalent. And I don't know if the synth is doing the entire string section, uh, potentially, but there has to be a better string patch than that. Yep. The end of Act One, she turns to Louise, and you know the line, and I can make you now. This. She delivers it, and I can make you now! And she's turning it into the most positive thing in the world. It's something she's genuinely realizing. I still have another daughter. I can turn her into a star. I'm still good. And when she offers Louise up to strip... 
She is laughing and crying with joy. This is the best thing in the world to happen to this woman. Mm-hmm. She has je- she's so deluded that she's convinced herself this is the best thing since sliced bread. And that also leads to something very brand new in this production. When she is admitting defeat in the dressing room in the House of Burlesque, she has a panic attack. We've never gotten a panic attack there. We've gotten heartbreak, we've gotten resignation, we've gotten buck up. We've never gotten a full-blown panic attack. She was hyperventilating. Which leads to what I think the thesis is for this rose. What's that? This rose is someone who is overlooked. She knows she's overlooked, but she can't be bitter about it because she's a respectable person. Mm. These are the this is the sack of rocks life gives you and you need to just carry it on. But that sack of rocks has been getting so heavy that by the end of the show she's having a mental breakdown because she never got any attention in her life. Yeah, I get that. I very much agreed with that thing of she really has this sense of dignity. She imagines this dignity that she's carrying with her. And she imagines that she's carrying herself to the highest standard and that she knows what's right. She is what's right. She knows exactly how this is all going to go and everything's just going to follow her because she knows what's right. And it's like she's so assured in this stuff. And any time something is sort of thrown in her way, she's able to go, no, it's not that. It's this. It's this instead. And don't you all love this idea? And this is the great idea. And you should all get behind this. And this is fantastic. She's so conniving in that way. She's really a cunning, cunning Rose. She's really someone quick on her feet, quick for a spin, you know? She's so quick to spin anything into... Oh, I anticipated this. This was all along. This was part of the plan. And the only time she's ever actually told no, grind halt, dead end, is when she's in the dressing room and she has a a panic attack and her lifeboat is marrying Herbie. And this, for me, is the most I've ever sensed that a Rose had less than zero interest in marrying Herbie. Absolutely none. This is... Oh, no, no, no. Imelda had no interest. True. Yeah, well, you know, Imelda had no interest, period. But <laughs> this this was just clinging on to a thing. This has nothing to do with Herbie. This has nothing to do with her love whatsoever. Herbie means nothing to her in this moment, especially in this moment. And you see, especially when she goes to offer up Louise... You can literally see her, you can hear her adapting to the situation in real time. As she's throwing things together, as she's getting the clothes and she's getting the music and all of these things, you can hear her settle into this. She was so frenzied at that point. She was so frenzied. And then she settled down into it. By the time she gets to the music, she's like back at that cool cell. She's not, of course, not entirely completely, but you're starting to hear the rose that we heard in Uncle Jocko's again. This really is one of the favorite performances that we've listened to here. One of my favorite performances, I should say. This is someone that deserves to play the role again. Yes. At least again, maybe in a more official capacity. Yeah. And at the very least, needs to play it again so it can get a video bootleg. Please. (laughs) One more stop. What's the year, kid? The year's 2018... 
And this rose, and I'm so delighted that we got to listen to this rose, it's Carolee Carmelo. Uh, lovely Carolee Carmelo, who I saw in Sweeney Todd, and I have to mm. say, I personally think, is the best Mrs. Lovett since Angela Lansbury. And that is also an interesting topic. What is the pipeline of Mrs. Lovett to Madame Rose? <laughs> Angela Lansbury, Patty Angela Lapone, Lansbury, Patty Lapone, Carolee Carmelo. When are we Give me get a second. Julia... I'm sure there's others. Judy Kay played it All in right. multiple places. Judy Kay actually came in when Patty Lapone was taking a vacation from Sweeney Todd to go do Gypsy at Ravinia. So, Carolee Carmelo plays Rose, and, oh, she's just great. I love her in this. Don't, don't you love her in this? She's just terrific in this. Um, I believe the phrase I used, and again, we're never hyperbolic here. Never. Everything's coming up roses. You could feel the tectonic plates of Earth shifting. She gets more laughs than I normally laugh at a rose. She got right. a laugh of... God, the goddamn monkey ate a piece of the cake. Bad, Gigolo. Bad. I laughed there for the first time. <laughs> she makes that stupid Kringleine bit work. And this was the theater in the round. What room? I don't know. You can't really create separate rooms with theater in the round. Yes, this was theater in the round. And she still somehow makes that bit work. God bless her. I am completely in love with her acting in this and her her vocal tone and the warmth that she has, and just how much fun she's having with the role. It's such a joy to listen to. She gets something that has pissed me off, because it's my line reading, and no one has been giving it. And it's your line reading. It is the way I would read the line. She finally gets it. There were two people that have ever gotten this. I was back in Seattle, and the cow came in, and she said, Rose, move over. Now, how that line should always go, Rose, move over. Because it's a cow. Cows moo. And you have the moo sound in the word. The only two people that understand you should be saying, move over. Carolee Carmelo and Dolores Gray. Thank you very much. They're the it's, it's only a... two people that go for that. That is a solid joke. They are the only two people that know it's there and go for it. It's a bit much. Oh, come on. Like, none of the other jokes in Gypsy are a bit much. I think to have a rose in a very stark and serious I'm finally becoming cognizant of my stuff moment to elicit a three-second-long moo. She goes for it, and she got a laugh. And it only makes the drama in that scene more intense. We had this discussion before. When you push comedy and drama right next to each other, it only makes each more powerful. Dan, do you have a thesis for this rose? I actually do have a thesis for this rose. This rose <laughs> is constantly trying to find something to hope for, and the world keeps getting in the way. I like that. At other moments I found just really interesting... Uh, the final dressing room scene with Gypsy, Carolee Carmelo was just a very systematic takedown of Gypsy. With your fancy parties and your fancy friends, they laugh at you. The burlesque queen like reads book reviews like they was books. It was very deliberate. Each point landed. It was, you are terrible. 
this is the reason why, this is sub-reason why, this is addendum B to point A of why. It was just, <laughs> you could tell this had been happening for years. And what is different today, Louise slash Gypsy has stood up for herself for the first time. And it freaks Rose the fuck out. And that is what then leads into that Rose's turn. And what a Rose's turn. Oh, what man. a Rose's turn. Oh man, she sounds fantastic. Well, and not just sounds incredible. The acting is everything you want. Nothing to shake a stick at here. This is the kind of rose that you write home about. As terrific as she is, I don't know if she's brought all the pieces together yet. I think sure. she's... If you saw her in person, there is nothing to complain about. I think she has an even better rose available to her. And her component score is already so high. It would be a damn shame if she didn't get another go at this role. Wow. That's our last rose. That's a high note to end on. A very high one. Especially a high note because of how often Carolee raises the keys in this production. That's something I wanted to mention. She raises the keys a lot, and I'm so happy about it. And she pops up several places. Thank you. Thank you, Carolee. Hey, guys. Uh, so this is, um, we, we're recording a little patch in here. We're recording a little something after the fact. We finished recording an this addendum. episode around. An addendum. We finished recording this episode about 24 hours ago. And in these past 24 hours, man has life changed. The world of Gypsy is ever-changing. We spent a long time in the recording of the episode mentioning the fact that one of the versions of Gypsy that we were so disappointed we weren't going to be able to cover was Beth Level performing at the Muni in 2018. There are no circulated recordings of this show. There are absolutely no one captured this. Dan had a really funny bit about that. You guys will never hear it, but it was truly funny, so let me tell you that now. But it would turn out that in the past 24 hours, me and Dan have had the opportunity to check out the Muni's production of Gypsy in 2018, starring Beth Lovell. Impossible. Things are happening every day. And so I dragged Dan into this blank, empty void in which we record our episodes because we are 100% going to be talking about it. And also, we had just talked about how much we were excited that we never had to listen to you gotta get a gimmick, and here we are like, <laughs> a day or two later. So... Please enjoy this unauthorized Critic Circle exclusive scoop on the 2018 Muni production. Of That's Gypsy. not all we're addending because we have more that has oh. to addendize. Oh, we're actually, Dan, this is an addendanus. Do you want to get your prophesizing out of the way first, actually? Okay, so <laughs> this has not happened yet in the episode. We are about to enter a section of the episode where we talk about Barbara Streisand. And I lament the fact that her album Release Me and the liner notes of Release Me, which was released <laughs> nine years ago, had a mention of a Release Me 2 that had never come out. And I said, why do we never. not have this album? I think she's recorded some of these songs. Why have we not gotten this? He said that this was... at such a volume, at such a frequency, that ears picked it up. I wake up, all of a sudden I get a text Barbara just tweeted. 
Release Me 2 is coming out oh. on August 6th. And we... by the way, this is... Hold on, I am talking right now. Oh my god. I want to point out that this is incontrovertible proof that I have a spiritual connection with Barbara Jones Streisand. We speak up to the heavens and we receive... We both we both willed things into existence here. This is a this is a miraculous series. This is a miraculous event series. I could not be more excited. I literally there was not a 12 hour turnaround time between me saying where is release me to and Barbara saying release me to is happening on August 6th. I am verklempt. That's the right word. So now that that is out of the way, now that you know that let's this is a holy episode you're listening to, let's go forward with this exclusive addendum scoop. A holy on episode. That is what this is. It is a holy series and it is a holy episode. I... Streisand has reached down and blessed us with her mighty love. I feel God in this Wichita Opera House, folks. So, Beth Level. Yeah. In Gypsy. Holy shit. At the Muni. Can I start this off by saying... I don't think I can stop you. Yeah, you really can't. This is easily breaking my top 25%. Easily. It, it, I, I so thoroughly enjoyed this production. You know, this kind of extremely high-quality version of Summerstock that still exists within America right now. I would say the Muni is probably winning the game when it comes to this kind of thing. You get stars from all around the world, not just people who, you know, of this traditional summer stock. No, you get big stars. You have people actively working on Broadway coming out to St. Louis to come do these things. This production of Gypsy is everything that you want when you go see a show at a summer stock. I mean, it's a great leading performance, it's a great production, it moves, God does it move, it's a great orchestra. You know, there are certain allowances that have to be made when you go see Summerstock. As far as Summerstock goes, this is the absolute tops. Now, can I tell you what your next thought is going to be? Sure. Oh, look, it's a summer stock that's over a hundred years old, and somehow they still manage to keep a turntable, as if it's nothing, and the turntable is we out in the elements. We got a turntable, baby! We stay Why do other people? with the turntables. Why do other people not think they can't have a turntable? Why do other people think that a turntable can't be maintained? Who could possibly think that a turntable needs to be removed? Uh, who? This was me doing you. So. Oh, what what was the show you're talking about? <sighs> I dreamed a dream you were better at this podcast. Oh, Le Mis. Oh, you keep. God, you gotta. We're talking about Gypsy right now. There's no time for the. Please keep your mind focused. We don't have to bring up Le Mis and everything. Every fucking episode. Who played Herbie here? What was the first message I got? Yeah, okay. No, 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 no. This Herbie played Tenardier on Broadway. We got him back on a turntable, baby. This is the biggest middle finger to Lawrence Connor that history could have imagined. So, what did you think about overall this production of Gypsy? 
Look, there's one moment I have to point out. Oh, yeah. When we talk about live theater, and we've all been inside for how long, we're not doing anything, and things get boring, and we try to stream things, but, you know, even sometimes that can be a challenge. You come to miss the spontaneity. You come to miss the hitting the snag and powering through it. Here's what happens. Yep. Beth Level goes to put on her coat during Some People. In the middle of and one of the most vocally powerful Some People I've ever heard. It's in the middle of Some People. She has to put on the coat, get across the stage, put the plaque into her bag, and walk off stage. And the coat won't go on. And the coat won't go on. She reaches about four times. And eventually she just goes, Rah! And she puts it on, <laughs> runs across the stage, options up on, but not Rose. She options up. It's fantastic. She throws the plaque into the bag and she runs off stage. That is theater. That is one of the most exciting things I have seen this yeah, entire last year. I missed year. that. Now, see, I enjoyed that coming to it. And a I made diva, about it, but I didn't realize how much it made me miss theater until right now. A, a diva just getting so sick of the shit that the coat isn't working and she has so much to do <laughs> and she still has so much to give the audience. She works it into oh, that. It's completely appropriate for the character. Yeah, Beth Lovell is not having trouble with this coat. Rose Hovick is now having trouble with this coat. <laughs> the fact that you are in that power mode, that dynamite mode, that I am going to war and the war is that stage and the war's name is Gypsy. And I will conquer and to prove that I'm going to conquer, even though this coat looks like it's conquering me, I will assert my dominance by growling and then belting high. I think Beth Level is the most American rose we have seen. Okay. And do you want to know why I say that? Uh, no, I'll be okay. So, okay, I... Good. Moving on. <laughs> go ahead. Go into it, please. I'm interested. She walks on stage, and immediately you can tell this is someone who is tired. And I don't mean that energetically. Beth Lovell gives every ounce of energy you could want from a rose in this performance. It has to do with her coming with an extremely strong backstory. Mm -hmm. It has to do with her coming up and really understanding the given circumstances of the character. And you could tell, and this is not true at all for Beth Lovell and other performances, but this performance, she walked on stage, you could tell... This woman has had a rough life. She just wants to get a better life for herself. You know, I guess I did do it for me. Absolutely, she did it for herself. She wanted to give herself a better life. It kind of had to do with the kids, but it was really just the kids had to be stars because she was born too soon and she started too late. You know, maybe she was married very young, thought she was in love, turned out that was not it. Hated the husband, hated married life. Mm -hmm. And now if she wanted a better life for herself, she had to turn the kids into stars in some way. She was going to have to ride those kids' coattails. Why I say she's the most American beyond that, it's about the American dream then. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you can create a better life for yourself. And just like a lot of Americans, she has been promised many things she has been sold on many systems that in reality are failing and do not work 
you throw in the whole American manifest destininess of it all, conflating with these failing systems, how does that end? That ends with someone on the side of the stage screaming, for me, for me, for me, for me. If you're lucky, you make it center stage and you get to belt, for me, for me, for me. But at the end of the day, what that comes down to and how that ends up is someone screaming about themselves. Hmm. I totally... Okay, that's a very good and very detailed reading. Um, I see where you got a lot of the, the Americana from, and I think my answer is a little bit more personal. Not personal to me, personal to Rose. One of the biggest tendencies that this Rose has in the way that she handles things is that she is very keen to block out anything around her. She's very keen to block out a voice that is coming at her trying to tell her something in favor of just brushing it aside and going off her own, you know, direction. She's completely in her own echo chamber. She is completely drowning out. And and, and every time she's actually being confronted and taken to task on these things, she kind of panics. When Herbie goes, did you hear what I said? She's thrown off her rhythm and then finds herself by saying, I did, but I'm ignoring you, which I think is uh, the first time she's really being true about that in this entire thing. And furthermore, I think what it comes down to is the fact that this rose fails at any level of introspection. Anytime anything wrong happens to her, it is because of the force of which this thing happened. Uncle Jocko has thrown her you know, to the side, she is quick to come back home and start lashing out at him. That dirty old Uncle Jocko, crook, fiend, you know, like really spitting vitriol against him. All of this really comes crashing down as those people start to flock from her life and as those people start to shed off her, you know? Anytime someone shows that sign of getting ready to leave, all of a sudden they are the villain. Because Rose absolutely refuses to do any work that could possibly acknowledge that she is anywhere near the problem. I think, you know, this didn't work out. I still need a better life. What is the angle here? What is going to get me to be better? And with Louise, Louise is her last ticket. So then when Gypsy writes her off, well, now what? I was riding high and I still wasn't any happy. What was all of this for? I have been lied to, putting my faith in these systems that I have been told my entire life should be working for me, have not worked for me, don't care about me, it, you know, blatant late-stage capitalism, <laughs> which is not that late-stage in the time of Gypsy, but, right. you know, it's the Great Depression, you know, it's, what does she have left by the end of the show, and I think that's what everything's coming up roses is about what do i have left so so it really is about like those systems failing her those systems she's bought in that possibly never existed and that are failing her and i mean the most obvious one is vaudeville but right in a larger sense i think she's positive making all of these actions taking all of these moves because it's all in the name of getting a better life for yourself which we are told we are able to do as americans you are free, you can create a better life. And at what cost? And what is the end result of that? And the end result is, again, for me. I will alienate every last person in my life because I was guaranteed a better life. 
You see, I could see our hypotheses sort of blending together. If these systems are the thing that fails her, if she puts so much trust in these systems and the systems are failing, but she's maybe not completely cognizant of the fact that these systems are failing her because that's the nature of capitalism. If something's going wrong, oh, it's the fault of the worker, not the fault of the system. And so she sort of internalizes that and instead lashes out at those people who to her represent those systems. You know, Uncle Jocko, um, Mrs. Cratchit, Herbie, Louise, eventually. Absolutely. You know? And then again, when you alienate everybody. Yeah. What do you have left? You have Rose's turn. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Although I will say, though, th- th- that theory I did have originally, for me, it was rooted. I will say it's absolutely definitely rooted in the fact that I think this Rose so desperately needs the people in her life and she doesn't at all realize it. I'm com- like I, I I buy into this system thing as like a completely viable way of of like interpreting this entire thing. But for me, what stood out to me the most was the fact that she so obviously needs every single ounce of love that she ever receives in this thing. She so needs it. When she says, "You'll never get away from me," uh, at first glance, I wrote she said that like a threat. Now I'm thinking back on it. She's saying it like it's dependency. I will live with oxygen. I will hydrate myself with water. You'll never get away from me. I need these things to live. You know, when she actually receives love from Herbie outright, when she lets herself receive love from Herbie, when he proposes marriage, you can see in her eyes, this is so incredibly important to her. And then he leaves all of a sudden He's the enemy because, oh, it's just another one of those things. Time to turn my heart against that. It's another person walking out, another person stabbing their back on me. She doesn't realize how much she really needs love. This is really like when she says after Rose's turn, when she says, I I want to just want it to be noticed. To me, that felt like how she was saying wanted to be loved without saying it. This entire mama's got to let go section, like, you know, the stuttering of the mama and everything after that, her world's like crashing down there she's she's having this fight that she keeps having throughout the entire show it's finally externalized because this is the hardest she's ever had to fight it she's always been you know eager to believe that everyone else is against her and that they're the fault and not her she's always been eager to believe that now she's so close to having to finally come to terms with it she's shouting herself into it in order to keep herself there it becomes like so apparent that she needs all of that love in her life and she so desperately needs it uh frankly with the end of this production it's the first time in a long 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 while that i felt really completely emotionally fulfilled by the sequence and where they've walked off that stage and they've gone i think rose is going to be all right well it's not just the systems it's she's a representative of the American dream. I don't even think that's something an actress can play. I think that's just who Beth Level is when she walks on stage. With this Rose, I think, having such a clear backstory, not that we necessarily know what that backstory is, but having such a clear backstory for herself, all of this love that you say she needs, that's rooted in all of that work that she did. I don't know what happened in the past. I imagine the first husband was very young, and walked out on her, left her, and it was absolutely heartbreaking. She's, the mother, of course, walked out. Uh, She's not used to love. She's not used to people loving her. And so she Mm -hmm. almost rejects that when it shows up. 
I'm so happy to have this detail of a thesis for this rose. You know? Mm hmm. There's a lot to talk about. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, we listened to highlights for each of these bonus roses. Um, we both watched the whole thing. Because, God, it's just so fluent. It's just such a fluent production of Gypsy. Is there anything you'd like to talk about other than the roses? Other than um, the rose? Just some stray thoughts. Uh, yeah. The percussionist was absolutely living his best life. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the kid during the Some People reprise that did the tap dance. That kid had a song in his heart and a dream <laughs> in his feet. I don't know what it was specifically <laughs> about that kid. I don't even like kids on stage, but I was uh -huh. just like, don't let anyone stop you from being you in the future, kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that kid will go forward to make a great Tulsa. Hopefully. <laughs> or maybe something better. Oh, I want to mention, they handled the bows after Rose's turn extremely well. Yes. Because... The bows are always something that you kind of have to register in a rose's eyes. And yes. in a 12,000 seat theater, <laughs> that ain't happening, kid. That completely <laughs> ain't happening. So she has to give some kind of auditory remark. She immediately starts, you know, thank you, thank you. And she, she makes all kinds of crazy sounds. I thought it yeah. was perfect for if you're in that size of theater to get the moment to land to get the meaning to register that's exactly how you do that that is uh -huh. exactly it do you have anything else to mention about this production yeah a few things some people reprise first of all cool to see a full car here oh Second of that's all, very unusual a full yeah. goddamn car yeah a, a real actual car of course only at the muni uh second of all Patty Lapone and Carolee Carmelo both had an opt up in some people. And then, you know, during the some people reprise, they're like, okay, fine. We'll come back down to earth. This is the way it's sung. The, they, they give it the usual ending. Not Beth. No, 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 no. She does both opt ups. She opts up at the end of the some people reprise and she holds it for three bars that was when I knew this is going to be one of the roses. Like, that was just definite there. <laughs> um, I've never felt more comfortable with a Herbie. There was something so deeply soothing about him. Something so because trustworthy. He was in and you trust no, there's something about his voice and the something about the way that he carried himself. I felt like I wanted, I wanted a nice cream soda. Oh, now we're getting into your backstory and your given circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> um, looking through my point form notes here, I took down a note that just says funniest pronunciation of egg ever goddamn known to man. Sure, Josh. Um, <laughs> they got Anne Harada as Electra. We talked about Michael James Leslie coming out to Nowhere America to do five minutes. Anne Harada's in Somewhere America doing five minutes. Well, St. Louis. At least Judy Garland sang a song about St. Louis. True. True. Oh, yeah, that makes it definite. That makes it definite. Oh, and Anne Harada is terrific here. She's hysterical. Oh, and you know man. What? I, watching All of the this, ladies here. Uh, it's a great, you gotta get a gimmick. It's an unusually great, you gotta get a gimmick. I, I Watching this, I realized I'd like to see Anne Harada as Rose. 
Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing it. Definitely, I think it would probably end up being like you know, I see her at um at a Lorna Luft kind of production, that kind of pretty damn good production of Gypsy, you know. Yeah, but no, all the ladies here are absolutely fantastic. I took a note down that said, I'm pretty sure this Tessie Tora was Magenta from Rocky Horror in a Past Life. <laughs> Something about that just lobbed me right in the face. I saw, like, that was right there. I've exhausted everything I have to say. Oh my god, 50 minutes? You haven't been looking this entire no. time? This is gonna be fun to it edit. <laughs> well, I think I've just about exhausted everything that could possibly be said. you haven't you haven't i saw you you texted me all of your thoughts while the show was happening i know we could do this for another two hours based on that yeah i've shared the most crucial i think this is as much as i can definitively go without making this a standalone episode this was a great production of gypsy and beth level was a damn good rose Oh, I'm so delighted to have seen this production. So sincerely enthralled. I am just enthralled, too, that we happen to get this. Out of nowhere, completely unexpectedly. So, with that being said, thanks for listening to this one addendum. And we hope you enjoy the rest and of the episode. And we join you. Back with your regular programming of our Gypsy finale. <laughs> Take it away, Dan and Joshua. So, those are our roses. Everything's coming up roses, and we know what those roses are. Yes, we do. We've talked about every rose that we've gotten. How do you feel? Exhausted. Hope not exhausted enough, because you know what we're going to talk about now? Well, we have to wrap this up with a nice bow because that's the kind of podcasting we're giving you over here at the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ding. Organization is us. 20 individual performances, 20 recordings. The question everyone always wants to know at the end of things like these. But what was the best one? And I'm going to start it off by saying right here, among the list of gifted performances that we were able to engage with here, trying to sort it in terms of who does Gypsy the best is a fool's errand. There are so many different elements that go into them, you know? How good of a production how... is it? How well-directed is it? How competent are the performers? How engaging is the story? How good is the orchestra? How good is, you know? There are too many elements to really fairly judge that. However... There is one that stands on top of all others still. Uh-huh. Ethel. Ethel, baby. It's Ethel. It, it, it doesn't get better. And, and I mean, it gets different, and it gets beautiful, and it gets heartbreaking, and it gets a million other adjectives. But, you know, the role was created for Ethel. Ethel is the best rose. So when you have these kinds of conversations, Ethel Merman shouldn't... It's like when I talk about favorite movies or whatnot or what the best movie is, I never talk about The Wizard of Oz because it is assumed that you already know that The Wizard of Oz is the best movie ever made and you're not a fucking idiot who doesn't think... who happens to think otherwise. It's just, yes, it's the best movie ever. That is a given. Now let's talk about the rest. With Gypsy... 
that's very much the case with Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman is the best rose. We can remove her from the conversation with the knowledge that that is just an understood fact. And in that, the question, I guess, then becomes, all right, so then who's next? Who's after? And it's Patti LuPone's production of Gypsy. Yes, I would agree. And we're not just saying this because, oh, because Patti LuPone. And because Patti LuPone, oh, she was born to play Rose. Oh, and she was great in this. Oh, and she gave us a lot. Oh, and she sung well. Oh, and she won a Tony. The production fundamentally is one of the most thorough takes on Gypsy ever. And maybe is the single most thorough take on this story that we'll ever get. Dan, you said it best. The man buildeth, the mytheth uppeth, and then the man teareth the building down. Yes. Uh, to not to just talk about Patty Lapone for a second. This is someone that was born with a rose voice. She delivers all of the score you want to hear. Uh, she delivers the comedy. She delivers the drama. And God does the drama get deep with this production. Of all of the things that are required of a rose, Patty Lapone checks the most boxes, and not only checks the boxes, exceeds the box and turns the box into a different shape. <laughs> it, it's it's a re- it's really a reinvention of Gypsy as we know it. It really is fundamentally one of the strongest productions of this show that'll probably ever be. And if we have Ethel Merman sitting at first place automatically, and if we have Patty Lapone sitting at a very 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 high atop second place. I'd like I I'd like to give a like a third place a runner up to the best rose. I think we both agree that that third place the runner up is Tyne Daly. Yeah, Tyne Daly. Which this was not a rose we agreed on. It's not. In it well in terms of her in terms of what her motive was in terms of the thesis of her in terms rose, of thesis. We, we certainly did not disagree at the depth of her talent and her skill and her capability with the material. Uh, this was just a total interpretation. Yes. Uh, a total rethinking of the role. She is aided by having the production built around her mm-hmm. so they can build it to her talents. Whereas yeah. I do think Linda Lavin was also a total rethinking of the role. The production wasn't built around that rethinking. Yeah. And there were moments of disconnection that, could have yeah. better serviced mm-hmm. and otherwise really, really new rose that Linda mm-hmm. provided. But that being said, Tyne offers what I would postulate as one of the definitive roses ever. Like, that is one of the landmark performances of that role. And that is one of the most important takes on this character, in my eyes. You know, for someone who was not born with a rose voice, she certainly has a brassy vocalism that suits the role really well. She lands all of the comedy bits, and yeah, she brings the drama. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of rose, and the kind of production of Gypsy, I'll say as well, that you can give someone as their introduction to the show. Pretty much. You just said that with Bette Midler. Yeah, if you want to give someone a professionally recorded version, sure. If you're going to show someone Gypsy on stage, then you show them Tyne. And, you know, Tyne Daly's production, 1989 to 1991, Bette Midler, 93. This was just a good chunk of time for Gypsy. A very definitive chunk of time. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to mention, 
um, we ended up doing, you know, I have a thesis, I have a thesis, what's the motive? That was not something we had ever planned. Yeah. And we randomly stumbled upon a thesis for Angela Lansbury's Rose. And we both entered Tyne Daily. And we, without specifically looking for thesi, theses, sure, thesis, we both found them. And that was a tip off that maybe this is how this series is going to go. It's a rose that helps you understand how you can reinvent the part and how you can really make it personal, how you can make it personable, how malleable the material is, how much these brilliant, brilliant actresses are able to reinvent and reinterpret this character and to mold it to their exact specifications. It really is just one of the most exciting and most promising roles in musical theater hey dan yeah you think it's enough to talk about all the roses that we listen to no, no. more more <laughs> more more how about this let's talk about roses that we never got huh uh-huh. it's not enough to we just talk mention. about it's not enough to just talk about the roses we got let's talk about the ones that we didn't Let's talk about the roses in our head. The roses that if you were, if someone were to ask you point blank, Billy on the street style, hey, what's a rose you would have liked to get that we never got? Boom. That's us, baby. That seems like a very long question for Billy Eichner to be asking. Well, he'd probably, yeah, he'd probably start running in the middle of him asking it. (laughs) I think you're going to lead this conversation because I think you know a lot more about the depth of performers that no longer could play Rose. There are a couple that come to mind as having been close to playing the role and didn't get the opportunity. Oh, yeah. The first, of course, is Judy Garland. Mm, wow. Was passed over for the movie. And you can hear her sing some people. Mm. And together, wherever we go, on her TV show. This is a massive rose that we missed. This is a blight on society. Speaking of movie roses that we never got, you know who's another movie rose that we never got? You're trying to feed me a line, but go ahead and I will respond. Barbara. Barbara Streisand. This hurts. Yeah, it does. This hurts, kids. This feels... Because it's... Barbara, of course, shopped around Gypsy for a number of years. And we do know that she recorded some of the songs. Of course, she sang a couple of the songs in her Back to Brooklyn concerts. But sitting at the Library of Congress are rehearsal tapes for when she was deciding in 1986 which songs she was going to include on her Broadway album. And included in those tapes at the Library of Congress, she does both Some People and Rose's Turn. Release the tapes. Please. You know what? I... I need to say, at the liner in the liner notes of her Release Me album, she did an album called Release Me, which were all unused tracks that she had amassed over the sure. years. In the liner notes of her Release Me album, at the very end, it mentioned that there was going to be a Release Me 2. 
A second Release Me album. We never got the second Release Me album. Where is the second Release Me album? And I think it's just a hunch that she recorded probably the entire score of Gypsy. Put that on the second Release Me album. Uh, that one will haunt my dreams. I mean, these will all haunt my dreams to a certain extent. Now, other people that were offered the role and didn't get it, Fun fact, you probably didn't know this. I probably the didn't. Angela Lansbury revival of Gypsy was not supposed to be Angela Lansbury. Oh? The revival was created to go to London and to star someone who had just made a huge splash in the London theater scene with company, Elaine Stritch. Oh my, I got that as soon as you said it. Holy crap. Whoa. And they could not raise the money with Elaine Stritch's name attached. What? And that is when they went to find Angela Lansbury. Oh, come on. That's <sighs> despicable. Elaine Stritch seems like she was born to play Rose. And we yeah. never got it. A pox on all of our houses. You know what I want to hear? Her some people. That's what I want to hear. I think she would have had an immaculate some people. Do you agree with me? Specifically that... She would have been great in the role. She just would have been great in the role. Another person along the way that was offered many times and it's been debated on why it didn't happen. One of my personal favorites, and I know one of your personal favorites, because if she's not one of your personal favorites, this podcast is over. Liza Minnelli. Mm. Yep. And I have to say, Liza Minnelli, some people at Radio City, that is the definitive recording of some people of all time. How could we not get all... We had Lorna. How could we not get Judy, Liza, and Lorna? Oh, we should have gotten all three of them. Liza, Liza really should have done it around the time of the Tyne Daily Revival or the Bette Midler movie. Somewhere in that general vicinity, she should have done Rose. And, I mean, we couldn't find anywhere for her to do it. She, she, she would have filled the St. Louis Muni. That's a, what, 12,000... <laughs> Oh seat theater. She would have she would have filled every seat. Yeah. And we would have all gotten her. Yeah. And the world would have been done a great service. Who do you think should have played it? I don't know. I'd have to really think about like who has missed the window. That's the question. Like that's a big You know someone who probably missed the window? Who's that? Jennifer Holiday. Oh, I man, really would yeah. be interested to see what a Jennifer Holiday Rose would have been. You would have to put her with the right director, undoubtedly. Mm -hmm. But I think she could be a fantastic Rose. Also, Lena Horne. How could we forget mm. Lena Horne? Of course, she was in a feud with Arthur Lawrence for how many decades? Right. So that's probably another reason why that didn't happen. But Lena Horne would have been great. You know who's on my mind now? And let me know what you think about this. Cheetah Rivera. Do you think? <sighs> Cheetah has performed Rose's Turn in a concert before. Uh-huh. And... I don't know how... I, don't, I, a... I think she would be able to act the shit out of that. It was a respectable Rose's Turn, but I don't know if she's right for the whole part. You don't think so? She's too positive. I think the very nature of her attitude is too can-do. And that's also true for Eliza. Rink. I think about the rink. Do you think that's about the time when she should have done it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mid, mid to late 80s. I don't know what her rose would look like, but... Me neither, but I think we yeah. really would get something distinct and interesting from her. Give it a spin. I... You know what? This is... That's, that's a sad note 
to end on on oh things we never got things that we didn't get we missed out on this that's sad you know what i'd like to instead swap it to what how about the roses that we're yet to get how about the roses that we could still get isn't that more uplifting okay why don't we i say a name you say a name i say a name you say a name okay all right who wants to start you i will jane krakowski yes yes correct that's correct this is someone who has the old showbiz attitude that would serve well with the show. This is someone who was a child actress and knows the world of which the show speaketh. Yes, 100%. This is someone specifically, you think about Simple, or not even Simple from Nine, but that was a great moment from Nine. You think of her taking the contract to Guido. Guido, I've received a divorce, and he rips up the contract, and she picks up the pieces of paper and looks around. The dramatic heft that she shows in that moment, that's something you want to see in Gypsy. And we're talking about pipelines. Jane Krakowski, bear with me on the six degrees of separation here. Very famously played the beloved Jenna Maroney on 30 Rock and in Jenna Maroney's dressing room, of course, is a poster of her playing Ava Peron in Evita. Boom, there you go, Evita Pipeline, Jane Krakowski. Mm -hmm. In Florida, dinner theater. I'm sure it was a Florida dinner. If it's Florida theater, there's a 50-50 shot that it's a dinner theater. (laughs) Oh, oh, the Floridians are not going to like this. (laughs) <laughs> it's true it's true you know you've been to productions with the face shield of chorus line oh, you no. sat there oh no <laughs> Not the face shield. you sat there this pandemic you floridians you know this is true oh boy i said my first name your name faith prince sure sure i think that would be a fantastic rose i i think there'd be a lot of real performance there that would be a really really powerful act heavy rose and one who i really think could also still get all of that fantastic vaudevillian charm you know like really perform that kind of like ethel merman musical comedy kind of stuff you know you think about how she's going tit for tat with nathan lane and guys and dolls that's the that's pretty much that kind of musical comedy energy that you need when you get to rose i think she'd be great in that i think she'd be good too you're up next my next name is Heather Headley. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Cool. I'd buy that. Uh, Heather Headley is certainly someone that can sing that score, and probably it sounds terrific. Yes. Uh, she went to very primal places in Aida. Her acting went to very primal places. The same primal places that I think would work perfectly for Rose. And she's just an arresting presence to watch on stage. Uh, you went to that John Doyle, The Color Purple, and I loved it. I had my issues. The second that Heather Headley went walked onto that stage, the entire mood of the room shifted, and you went, that's a star. That is star quality. Really, really, really that's good what you choice. Want a, a really good choice. Someone that's going to hold your attention. You know, I actually have... We were mentioning the Elf of a Pipeline. Okay. On a gas tire. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would kill this role. Would absolutely kill it. No, she would be just terrific. Could not be first better. First of all, Anna Gasteyer deserves more theatrical love in the first place. 
because she's so good. Well, we've yeah, did, we've professed our love for her in previous episodes, specifically her. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it any day. Mm-hmm. No, she you don't exactly be, have to put a gun to my head. She would be a terrific Madame Rose, terrific, and really would be able to handle the score. What a clear belt! Totally, totally. Um, Lashans. Ooh, I like Lashans. Is the perfect age to do it right now she's look she proved exactly how much she can handle dramatically with the color purple she can more than sing it she can more than sing it she can more than act it she has star quality i don't know what's mm-hmm. taking so long someone get Lashans in the role absolutely 100 uh, percent. yeah and you're right she could do it right now you want to know someone who couldn't do it right now but could do it in about 20 or so years Oi, I'll be dead. Go ahead. Tell me if you disagree with this. I have a feeling you might not agree, but this is... I'm just going to throw this out on you and tell me what you think. Lindsay Mendes. I think in the future she could do this. 20 years seems a long time for her. I do think it's too early, but I think she's about a decade off. Yeah, it's more, more like 10 years. 10 years. But I would like to see her do this. I'd really like to see her do this. Wickedly fluent with the music. She would... Wickedly talent okay <laughs> that's a rose that we're not gonna get and that's a rose that i don't necessarily need um but but i think like the music goes without saying she would absolutely destroy this score she would eat it up and i would be really interested to see how she embodies the role too i i love her as an actress and i would so love to see her do this someday I don't think we've seen the type of acting from her. I, I, we know she's a great actress. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, I don't think seen we've kind. seen the type of detailed book work from her. I think she can definitely do it. Um, but I think it'd be very interesting. An interesting yeah. development in her career. Give her a good orchestra. Specifically her, I ask, give her a good orchestra. Give them all good orchestras, but give Lindsay Mendes a good orchestra. You know, um, while you yeah. are on the topic of people that have been in Wicked, I think, oh, yes. I think Christian Chenoweth could surprise us. I think so, too. I would... I think that'd be interesting. I'd be interested in that. She would need to do it in the next couple of years. But yeah. where I am concerned is if she stops herself from being absolutely maniacal enough. And I do think oh, that yeah. if she is maniacal enough, she'd be pretty unstoppable. But... Yeah. There's a whole cutesiness to her that, that she I can think absolutely used, mm-hmm, used in a subversion would be very unsettling. And I can see her Everything's Coming Up Roses being one of the creepiest. Uh-huh. And I mean that in the best way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, course. you're completely right. I got one last name. Okay. Heidi Blickenstaff. Yeah. Yeah. She should do it. She should do it now. She could do this any day. She, I feel like this is someone, if we get it in the next year or we get it in the next 15 years, she will be able to do it. <laughs> I feel completely assured in her capability to play Rose. I, it, it just feels like she has that essence to her. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like she has that in her pocket, ready to go. But is she too likable? That would be my worry with her. Is Bernadette Peters too likable? Is Betty Buckley too likable? Is Linda Lavin too likable? <laughs> She would need to, she would need to figure out how to play against that or use that to her advantage. I have no doubt. But that I she think could. she could be great. 
I, I, I think I, she could yeah. be great. I yeah, no, she'll need like it's something that'll need a good director. But I think mm-hmm. it, I don't think it'd be a cakewalk. But I don't think it'd be the hardest job in the world either. We have reasons to be optimistic about the future, especially with the last two roses that we saw and that we both said should be given another shot. Uh, and talking about the future, I'd like to finish this. Co- uh, I'd like to finish. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> I'd like to finish this series on the first question that we asked when we started this series. You asked that question the first time. And so in the spirit of the student becoming the master and me assuming responsibility of the podcast uh, going forward. Um, oh, Jesus fucking <laughs> I, I've called the home. They're very happy to have you. Um, <laughs> You're not as cute as you think you are. You're completely incorrect about that. Um, Dan, the question is, is Gypsy the greatest piece of musical theater ever made? I have changed my opinion. Do you remember what your original opinion was? My original opinion was, if you call it that, I will not argue. And And that I have other things I might like better. And while still there are other things I might like better, my opinion now is yes. And here is why. We talked about the rigors of editing this (laughs) event. Mm -hmm. And we have floated, would we ever do something like this again? And... If we were to do something like this again, what would be the shows? What would be the conditions? It's a lot of internal boring talk. In this conversation, I realized, just discussing the other shows, and I think there are other shows that would benefit from a type of event like this. Mm-hmm. Not, not just by us, just in general. Like this deep of a dive into a show. Yeah. Well, there are other shows that I think would benefit from this deep of a dive. I don't find any of them as structurally brilliant as Gypsy, and I don't find any of them as sound to completely different interpretations. I mean, no two roses are alike. Was there a single two that you said, well, this feels like this person? There might have been moments. Not unless they were in the same production. Yeah, there might have been moments, but they didn't feel similar. Yeah. Reminiscent, but never similar. Yes. I think this is the only show that can withstand such reinterpretation and still has the structural brilliance and still has so much new to find. You know, I didn't mention this during the Carolee Carmelo bit, but there was a new line I found even in that recording of no women I know are going to have their daughters in burlesque. How many women does Rose know? <laughs> How many women do you honestly think she, she How knows? How many friends it's... does Rose have? Exactly. There are so many questions. And there are so many great lines. And there are so many possibilities. At first, I had the kind of thought of, well, you know, you spend 20 hours talking about a show and you watch 20 performances, you'll probably find enough nuance and depth to run you mile into any show you think of. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about it now, and I'm not sure that's true. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. There are other shows that I've talked about. Well, I wonder if this would be a good event and a good thing or whatever. And while I do think there are other shows that really would benefit from this kind of event, when I think about those shows and I think about what I know about those shows, and I sit down and I think about what those beat-to-beats look like, they don't always hold up the same way that Gypsy has seemed to hold up. Yeah. 
there's never been a time where we've talked about a scene in one production and have had the same thing to say about the scene in another. There are productions where we will not mention the scene at all. There are productions where the entire grasp of the production hinges on that scene that we ignored in the previous episode. Every single moment, every single line, and every single story beat of this show has an avenue of possibilities that opens it up to completely radical and different interpretations. And for a musical made in 1959 to have that kind of solid construction, that kind of longevity, and that kind of deep, deep, deeply interesting storytelling, combined with excellent music, combined with excellent lyrics, combined with excellent dialogue, combined with an overall story that leads to the most brilliant productions and the most brilliant performances and the most brilliant character dynamics. It's hard to argue against the case of Gypsy being the, the best musical. Very hard to argue against it. I wonder if it'll go down in history as one of the landmarks of theater. How could it As not? an art form, I wonder. Is that too big? Am I globalizing Seriously. it too big? No, but how could it not go down in the annals of history it's held up for over 60 years and it'll hold up for a hell of a lot more i think i think too because it's about relationships and the types of relationships it describes happen anew every day wow what a deeply touching note to cap it on <sighs> wow dan we're done with gypsy mania we are done with this event that has consumed the past three months of our life sad to see it go i honestly am and also i won't listen to a single song from gypsy for like at least a week like i can't even think of oh oh it'll probably be at least two months for me i have i have really quick bounce backs with shows i have really quick like well app, that's like, going to be very good for us because i booked you on only fans i am oh. your manager and oh. your mother i made you and we're gonna make you a star on only fans and so that quick bounce back time that's gonna be needed is is that the modernization of gypsy that we go for is that where we turn burlesque into i'm would hate to think so, but I'm afraid that is it. <laughs> is this the is this the Evo von Hope production of Gypsy? I've never heard a more you antithetical thing back. in my life. Yeah, I've never yeah, heard you as, take that. I've back. never heard a more nonsensical sentence. <laughs> he wouldn't. He wouldn't do that show. There's happiness in it. <laughs> you saw what he did to West Side Story. There was a song dedicated to happiness. He went no, <laughs> no, no. Oh my god. Well, thus ends maybe the most comprehensive discussion of Gypsy since Arthur Lawrence sat around a table with the fourth Broadway Revival Company. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we have spent an embarrassing amount of time on this. We've spent we a day. We've spent an entire it. day. God, we Here's, hope you enjoyed this. You know what? Here's some quick math for our devoted listeners. Not only have we spent what is now we are coming on a half hour away from 24 hours an entire full beginning to end day talking about gypsy not just that but we've also spent a cumulative 
44 hours just watching and listening to this show. Psst, editor Josh hopping in here to say that that number is now 46 and a half. Thanks, Beth. That's 68 hours altogether. 70 and a half. Love you, Beth. That's not including editing. Oh my god. If we want to talk about editing, we have, we have what, 24 hours? Probably that times two and a half. At least. My god. You don't... Uh, y'all, y'all. Doing a podcast might be a self-indulgent venture but god are we putting in the work for you listeners <laughs> <laughs> so recommend us to other people please review us not to get desperate here but please review us tell your Rate friends us. hey do you want to hear uh do you want to hear eight different an hour and a half to two hour episodes of people talking about gypsy and then they'll say no and then you'll go well they have other episodes too and then hopefully that'll sign them up <laughs> And I can say that because you've already sat through. You've taken this journey with us. You've signed that temporal contract, friend. <laughs> Thank you so much for supporting this podcast and for sitting with us and to and for joining us in our journey through Gypsy. We've reached the conclusion of our first ever event series, Gypsy Mania. And the mania is now resting. The mania, no, the mania never rests. The mania doesn't rest, Dan. Gypsy mania, maybe, but the mania is, I, I, I'm not, uh, until I'm, until I'm getting a prescription, that's not dying. The way you're handling this ending is very yeah. clear. The mania is not so Finished! We're just getting started. I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's we're gonna just beginning come now. True, we're just getting started. Baby. And you know what? I'm shocked they you didn't find a way to find if Mama was married baby. and getting that title wrong again because you've done that every single episode so far. Bye, guys. You'll be swell. The Unauthorized Critic Circle podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Gypsy! And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critic Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute recordings discussed herein. (laughs) 